A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Telegraph. The Telegraph Podcasts I'm David Knowles and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront, discuss the state of Ukrainian football in the full-scale invasion, and Dom Nichols interviews the chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute, John Spencer. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 18th of September, one year and 206 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, foreign correspondent James Kilner, Kapati Lviv representative Roman Timotsko, Ukrainian football expert from Zoraya Londonsk, Andrew Todos, and Kapati Lviv fan and friend of the podcast, Jez Myers. But I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, good morning, David. Good morning, everybody from a beautiful, sunny Jacksonville in Florida. Um, Let's start with last night. So the Air Force has said it was an unprecedented number of aircraft took part in strikes across the country last night. They're saying several dozen aircraft. In a quote, they said, it is unusual that they were in the airspace at night. These are both drones and tactical aircraft that attacked Ukraine, together with cruise missiles and Shahid drones. Aircraft activity was high. Air defences are said to have brought down 18 drones around Mykolaiv and Odessa and another 17 missiles. The Ukrainian general staff said they'd shot down six cruise missiles and six Shaheeds, so those numbers don't quite um, add up, maybe a bit of miscommunication there. But others did obviously get through. There were no figures on casualties, but damage to civilian infrastructure has been reported. Elsewhere, the counteroffensive continues, making slow progress in the south and east. But in the east, the town of Klishkiva, which is about five south of Bakhmut was retaken and then linked to that analysis by the Institute for the Study of War. The US-based think tank there said elements of two of Russia's four airborne divisions and three of Russia's four separate airborne brigades are defending in the Bakhmut area. 
They say this significant Ukrainian achievement has helped prevent Russia from creating a large mobile VDV operational reserve. That VDV is the Russian airborne forces, airborne reserve, that could have been used to stop the main Ukrainian counteroffensive effort in Zaporizhia. Today's update from the uh, from British military intelligence is saying that a, a number of VDV regiments, I think about five, have been moved around to the south to shore up the defences around Tokmak and in the area of this sort of southern counter-offensive push. That is suggested that's not gone down well at all with the VDV because they are better used as light sort of mobile elements and not held in sort of static reserve places. Of course, you've got to bear in mind that the VDV as, as it is now is nothing like what it was when it started the full-scale invasion so they are the numbers have largely been replaced because of dead and wounded so it's not the kind of traditional ethos of an airborne soldier so we should just think of them as i think normal soldiers now so hence they're now being used in a normal defensive role elsewhere president Zelensky was on uh, cbs's 60 minutes program uh, over the weekend he said that ukraine is fighting world war one with drones and said that whilst his forces had the initiative they have been bogged down by the depth of moscow's uh, defenses down south he said western donated tanks were supposed to punch through, cutting the Russian force in half, but trenches, minefields and artillery stopped the armoured advance. Now it's an artillery duel with each side firing about 40,000 shells a day. Ukrainian infantry is advancing bloody yards at a time. It's World War One with drones. We've been reporting recently that, that there are that the assessment is that, that Russia and Ukraine have artillery parity so they both got the same amount of combat power uh, in terms of artillery which is in many ways amazing because russia is, is a very artillery heavy force that's their doctrine they use that first of all to actually try and completely smash up the opposition and then move in so to achieve parity is an achievement in itself however you never want to go into the attack with parity you want to be able to overwhelm the the opposition so even though they've achieved parity that that does not mean that we should expect any huge breakthrough soon in terms of what artillery can do. However, President Zelensky also added that, that, that Ukraine would have reclaimed its territory if the West had supplied enough modern systems, his words, modern systems. Now, unclear what he was talking to, but we know that they've long been um, agitating for long-range missiles, including Germany's Taurus cruise missiles, the USA TACOMs. I asked the National Security Council spokesman John Kirby last week about attackums. He said there were active discussions going on, but no decision yet from President Biden. You can see that interview on our website. And then on a, on a similar point, President Zelensky said Ukraine had the moral right to strike inside Russia, to strike Russian territory. And again, I asked John Kirby about that, and he was very clear. He said, we do not encourage or engender such attacks. So you know, the US very clear about the... Uh, I mean, John Kirby was very clear about the, the, the fear of nuclear escalation power. But if, if um, there was a direct link between U.S. supplied munitions and attacks in Russia. So that is still a, a very sore topic. And then just to finish on this, President Zelensky warned Russia, your sky is not as well protected as you think. Now, he stopped short of claiming credit for all the attacks on Moscow and other regions recently. And I think there were a number of drones shot down between the Moscow region and, and Ukraine over the weekend. So President Zelensky wasn't taking credit for those, but he, he issued a warning if Russia were to target Ukrainian power stations as we approach winter. He said... They must know if you cut off our power, deprive us of electricity, deprive us of water and gasoline, you need to know we have the right to do it, as in strike inside Russia. Uh, just a couple more points. 
Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister, Hannah Malia, we've quoted her a number of times. She is said to be among uh, five deputy ministers who have been dismissed from their posts. Not entirely sure why. This comes a couple of weeks after Alexei Reznikov, the Defence Minister, was sacked, slash resigned, slash told to step to the right, turn to the right before it was pushed. So we don't quite know what this is. There are some suggestions that there's been a a bit of miscommunication. So Hannah Malia has claimed recently towns like Klishkiva and Andivka were retaken by the forces before that had been confirmed by the military. So there seems to be either a bit of a disconnect or they've just fallen out with each other and, and she's not no longer got the confidence of the fighting troops. So not sure exactly why, but she's gone. And then just a couple more points. Britain's MOD, again, saying that uh, we think they think Russia is stockpiling cruise missiles for the winter uh, and saying that the the... Since April this year, the number of air-launched cruise missiles used has reduced. The expenditure rate has, has, has markedly gone down. Meanwhile, Russian leaders have been pushing for an increased uh, production rate. So they think they're storing things up for the winter. North Korea, uh, we were talking recently about Kim Jong-un's visit with Putin or vice versa, talking about um, supply of ammunition. And uh, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that any arterial material help from North Korea is not likely to make a big difference. He was talking to journalists and he said, uh, would it have a huge difference? I'm sceptical of that. He said, I doubt, he didn't want to play down any weapons assistance, but said, I, I doubt it would be decisive. And then just finally, just linked to that point I made earlier on about Russia moving its uh, moving its forces to the south, we think that um, the Tokmak is going to become a, a, a linchpin defensive position if it's not already down south. That's a major road and rail junction um, on the way to Melitopol. Um, and if you were to sever, if they were Ukraine were to sever that line and, and possibly take Tokmak, it would make the ground supply the, along the the land routes that are on the north of the Sea of Azov very difficult to resupply Russian forces in that area. Uh, and I'd better take a breath there. Cheers, David. Thanks very much, Dom. Good to hear you're doing well over in the States still. Well, James, can we start with you then? And can we just start on Dom's point there? Do you want to, do you want to jump off from Dom talking about Tokmak? Because that was something you've been looking at as well. So Tokmak, as Dom was saying, the MOD described it as linchpin point. So it's a town of about 30,000 people in the Okpo Zaporizhia region. We understand that the Ukrainian forces are trying to push their counteroffensive while the weather's still good and, and try and take the town. It's about 12 miles south of Ropotinia, the village they took about a fortnight ago, three weeks ago. There's still reports of sporadic fighting outside the village, but they've claimed it as a major breakthrough and they're looking to build up momentum. As listeners of this podcast will already know, some of Ukraine's Western allies have been critical of Ukraine for a slow pace of its counteroffensive. Robertinia is actually only about eight miles or so from the start line of the counteroffensive, which uh, the whistle went on that sometime in mid-June-ish. So it has been very slow progress, as Don was saying. Tokmak is now being talked up as the next target for Ukrainian forces, but it is 12 miles away. They've only taken eight miles of territory. We do know, according to the MOD assessment, that the Russians have been refortifying um, the road in the town of Topmak. They've been putting up hedgehog anti-tank um, defences, building new trenches, rushing in forces, etc. This area is defended by the 58th Combined Arms Army of Russia, and they lost their popular commander, Popov, in July. He was critical of the Ministry of Defence, and that was shortly after the 
Wagner attempted mutiny. And then the, the, the Ministry of Defence was running through a bit of a purge of officers, which it thought were a bit shaky. And the commander, John Popov, was considered one of these with these guys, and he got kicked out. So the 58th Combined Arms Army of Russia is considered maybe slightly vulnerable at the moment. They've been there a long time. Popov was sat because his companion's forces hadn't been rotated out. And this was back in June, July. So another six weeks, two months on, they're even more tired. And Ukrainians are desperate to prove that their, um, their counteroffensive is going to be uh, w- worth the effort. Um, and um, as Don was saying, Melissapol, which is about 50 miles on from Togmak, was an original target, we think. And Togmak is an essential stepping stone that I don't think anyone thinks they can get to Melissapol in this fighting season, but even getting top mat under their belt would be a huge achievement. Thanks very much, James. Can we move away from the front line then and talk a little bit about um, uh, grain tankers in the Black Sea? This is, again, something you've been looking at. What's the significance of what's happening there? So this is really important, David. This is two large grain tankers made it to the port of Odessa for the first time since the grain deal with Russia collapsed in uh, July. Now, Russia had promised to blockade Ukrainian ports after the collapse of the Grain Deal and had even said that it would treat all ships sailing towards Ukraine as potential armed smugglers and would either intercept them or attack them. We know that this has happened once. There was a very high-profile boarding of a grain tanker by Russian commandos last month. But since then, the RAF, among others, have said that they've been patrolling the Black Sea and they've been talking up the prospect of, of a safe passage, a corridor that can be used to buy grain tankers to get to Odessa, to load up with grain and then get the grain out to Africa and South Asia, etc. And this seems to be evidence that this is going to happen. So these two grain ships made it on Saturday. The Ukrainian infrastructure minister said that they were loading 20,000 tonnes of grain destined to Asia and Africa. And uh, he held it as a very important market. Previously, five large freight ships, which have been stuck in Odessa port since the beginning of the war, had made it out. So we know that there is an active toing and coming and going of ships at the moment from the port of Odessa. I have to remind uh, listeners very quickly, this is different from the Danube Delta ships, which have already been coming in and out of Ukraine. Ukraine's been shifting a lot of their grain exports through the Danube Dales since the beginning of the war, rebuilding infrastructure there, etc. And much smaller ships have been going in and out of the Danube Delta for some weeks. But this is important because these are the first ships which have made it to Odessa, the largest port in, in Ukraine. Thank you very much, James. Just one more story from you, if that's all right, and then we'll move to Kabaty Lviv. Uh, but James, looking to Russia, there have been surging fuel prices across the country. Why is this happening and what do you make of it? The, the important thing here is that it's linked to the war. This is what our listeners are interested in, and, and, and this is a, also a primary reason for, for these fuel price rises. They're linked to the war because refined fuel products have been prioritised for the war effort. Transport, which is needed to send fuel around the country, has been being, being reassigned to propping up the fuel, the war effort, etc. And also Russia's exporting more raw crude oil and more refined oil than previously as well, because it needs the cash to, to, to fund its war. But prices have started to, to rise significantly. And there's been a, a noticeable increase 
in comments online and in Telegram, not just media and Russian media comments, but also just people grumbling, including farmers in South Central Russia, where Russia, who the Kremlin is relying on to harvest their crops at this time of year, these valuable grain crops, which we, we, we've been talking so much about. But the farmers in South Central Russia have even gone as far as to say that if the Kremlin doesn't do anything about the surging price of diesel, they will block, start blocking rows of their tractors. So this is significant. This is a sort of social level protest against the Kremlin. The Kremlin hasn't reacted with force or anything like this. The sort of force that we'd expect it to react if this was a political protest. This is not a political protest, it's an economic protest. But it has said that it will restrict exports of uh, refined crude overseas. Now, this is important because although there are various mechanics and, and sanctions, etc., on Russian oil and, and Russian refined oil products, it still makes its way to the EU significantly. EU companies are still allowed to buy it to a degree, but it also comes through third countries, significantly mostly from India, which is a major oil refiner, a major oil exporter of refined products to the EU. It has massively increased its purchase of Russian oil uh, since the start of the war, and the EU has massively increased its purchases of Indian refined oil products. So there's a sort of complicated hypocrisy here with the EU. It's cut down its oil product purchases from Russia, but it's increased them from India claiming that it's doing the right thing, it's sort of denting the Russian war effort. But it's these Russian oil products are actually being washed and laundered in a way through India. Now, with the Kremlin restricting or starting to restrict export of oil, refined oil products from Russia, we will see in the EU and no doubt in Britain rising petrol pump prices again, which, as we know, always infuriates people. So th- these are th- this story shows the interlocking nature of uh, Russia's economy and the global economy and our, our, our own fuel price uh, data. Thank you very much, James, for talking us through all of those stories. Let's move back to Ukraine then. Of course, something we've noticed across the full-scale invasion is ordinary life carrying on. So it's a pleasure to be joined by representatives from Kapati Lviv Football Club. We wanted to talk a little bit about football in Ukraine, what's happening, what the challenges of the full-scale invasion are, and how the clubs are operating. So, Roman Timotsko, can I start with you? Would you just tell us a little bit about your club? Hi, thanks for having me here. I'm representing football club Karpato Lviv. We're the biggest football team in Western Ukraine, based in Lviv, which is close to Polish border. And during the full-scale invasion, the biggest issue there is that we cannot host our thousands of fans at our home stadium. We are dreaming of a day after the victory where we can see almost 30,000 of them going to our home matches. At this point, we're in Persha Liga, which is second tier of Ukrainian football. And we also hope that next season we will be in Ukrainian Premier League. So um, it's an honor to be here. And football is... Not the same as before Russian invasion, but it's still carrying on and tournaments are going on and our fans can follow us online, watching all of our games on YouTube for free and following us on multiple social media to know everything about 
the club so we can keep in touch and continue our relations with fans. So on the first match after the victory, we can see them all in person. Roman, can I ask, what happens during an air raid? How do games actually proceed? Have you had to change how you do them? And what kind of crowds are you allowed into the stadiums at the moment? So as the air raid siren goes off, uh, the match is stopped and everyone on the pitch or off the pitch is going to the bomb shelter. So we cannot host our supporters on the stadium because our bomb shelter doesn't have the capacity to host thousands of people, maybe like a hundred. So only the club staff and the club management is allowed to the stadium. So during one of our recent matches, we had two aerial sirens and match stopped for half an hour and then it continued. And we were lucky enough to finish the match and then in a few moments after the final whistle, there was another aerial siren. So it is annoying for sure. And in terms of sports, it might have an impact on the match. But it's our reality. And each time we hear the sirens, we should go to a shelter or to a place behind two walls. And just a final question from me. What is the state of your finances at the moment? I imagine there's a bit of a reduced income due to the full-scale invasion. How is the club surviving? I'm not sure if any Ukrainian clubs uh, are coping well in this time. So uh, the match day uh, income is zero. So we try to cope by sponsorships. We are dependent on how many viewers we have on YouTube. And we try to attract more and more sponsors because Karpate for Lviv, for Ukrainians in this region, as you probably have in the UK, is a social cultural phenomenon of our region so more and more people are joining the community and it's great for sponsors to have their brand on our t-shirt and on our youtube channel so that's how we try to manage the finances but situation is very very difficult for everyone well thank you very much roman well can i move quickly then to andrew andrew you're an expert on ukrainian football we hear a lot about Shakhtar, dinamo kiev some of the the really big teams but could you give us a sense of how the full-scale invasion has impacted smaller clubs hi thanks for having me on yes yeah, so since the full-scale invasion a number of professional teams have sadly folded through either financial problems or resulting of the war some obviously found themselves in occupation such as FC Mariupol. They have for now folded and will hopefully be back once, obviously, Mariupol has returned from Russian occupation. Also, FC Desnachenikiv in the north of Ukraine, they had their entire stadium destroyed. I think if anyone's seen a destroyed stadium from Ukraine over the sort of past 18 months or so, and basically the entire footballing infrastructure was destroyed, and they similarly had to temporarily fold. However, there are rumours that potentially the club may be returning at some point in the future with efforts being made with that regard. However, similarly, where they're going to play and is currently under question. With regards to the teams that currently do exist, obviously we've heard from Karpata Lviv, they're going quite well. They've got a, a big supporters base. A lot of their ultras are fighting on the front line. The same with a number of other clubs across Ukraine. So uh, FC Krivbas, who play in uh, Krivirich, which is not too far from the front line in Dnipropetrovsk Oblast. They've lost quite a few of their key fans. However, they've been helping support them with aid and, and other things in terms of auctions 
and and similar supplies. Their actual manager, following the, the start of the full scale invasion, he was ma- managing Sheriff Tiraspol in Moldova, and he packed in his job there, went to the front lines, fought as the driver over there for the first few months of the war. Then he was given sort of special dispensation by the Ministry of Defence to go and manage FC Krivbas Krivirik. And Krivbas is the team from Volodymyr Zelensky's hometown. And last season, across Ukraine, sort of top three professional uh, leagues, everything went without any major issues, per se. Yes, there were delays due to air raid sirens, However, as far as I'm aware, I think 99% of all games finished on the same day that they started. And only one of those matches in the Ukrainian Premier League, anyway, was delayed just as a result of lack of floodlights. So it was less of a war issue, more of an infrastructure issue from that respect. However, clubs are surviving just about. Uh, Metalist 1925, who are from Kharkiv, they're currently based in Kiev, though, um, since the start of the full-scale invasion. They were very close to going bust literally a few weeks ago. So they started this campaign for the new Premier League season. However, their owners or their main sponsors, AES Group, who are involved in energy, other sort of related subjects, they had a number of their infrastructure points or main energy depots destroyed so they actually announced that unfortunately due to the result of the russian attacks on our infrastructure and on our business we're unable to fund the club anymore so there was a lot of talk that old oh, oh, metalist might be the first club to go bust from the ukrainian premier league per se since the full-scale invasion began however last minute a new sponsor was found and we'll be supplying them for, for the foreseeable. And then there are a number of other clubs. Their owner's main income is from agriculture. And Colos, for example, they've done a few fundraising efforts or a few donations of vehicles to soldiers on the front line. Uh, similarly, Dynamo Kiev have, Shakhtar have, and a number of other clubs in the Ukrainian Premier League too and across the, the lower divisions too. I would like to sort of raise a, a couple of interesting examples of clubs that maybe people might not know too well. One is uh, Levy Berek, or Left Bank in Ukrainian, uh, who play on the left bank of Kiev. They are very focused on their youth and their academy. At the start of the war, their senior team was at a mid-season winter training camp in Turkey. And I think out of the full squad, which was over 25 people, per se, including the manager and the coaching staff, etc. Only about six of them returned after the full-scale war began. So the owner of the club disbanded the entire senior team. They sat out last season's uh, professional second tier and third tiers and have returned this year. A new side, new squad. They've got a brand new stadium that started being built before the full-scale invasion but was completed during the full-scale invasion and a number of clubs from the Ukrainian Premier League actually rent it out for their matches. And they've also rebuilt their academy because obviously following the full-scale invasion, we saw lots of children, lots of mothers leave Ukraine very early on for, for countries across Europe. And those 
young children have ended up going to other academies at clubs across the continent. So from a, an academy system that had over 200, it went down to less than 20, I think. And since then, they've rebuilt it up to over 200 again, obviously. And another, I think, final example that I've got that is probably the most, I guess, war-related team that I could think of that has been rebuilt as a as a positive project to try and re reinstate some hope and support as a new community club in Ukraine is Maria Hostomel. So obviously Hostomel was one of the key uh, spots in Kiev Oblast at the very start of the war, one of the first battles in the full, from the full-scale invasion, where obviously the Maria Antonov plane was based and destroyed. And this new team, Maria Hostomel, they're playing currently in the Kiev Oblast League. So it's amateur football for now. However, they have got ambitions to move up to the fourth tier of Ukrainian football, which is the amateur championships, and then potentially maybe in the future go into professional football. And essentially what makes this team unique is that it's, their squad is uh, 100% consisted of players or people from the current occupied regions or regions that have been heavily affected by the war. So a lot of people from Donetsk, Donetsk Oblast, Luhansk, Luhansk Oblast that have moved obviously since 2014 and some since 2022. A lot of people from Kherson, other people uh, similarly have also been coming from Mykolaiv and Zaporizhia, etc. They've got very little financing compared to some of the other clubs that are in their league, but they've got off to a good start this season. They're hoping to try and attract a few new sponsors to sort of help them pay some of the fees that are related to playing in the league. So if anyone is interested in that, then uh, do get in touch. Would you just say the name of that team again one more time, please? Yes, Maria uh, Hostomel. And could you just, before we go on to a proper Kapati Lviv fan, Andrew, could you just uh, give us a sense of the league as it stands at the moment? Like, zooming back maybe from the, the full-scale invasion, what's the state of Ukrainian football? Who's in the running? Who's having a good season? What would people from the outside who do care about football, what, what would they see? So at the very start of the full-scale invasion, the league was just about to resume from its winter break. It didn't, and the 21-22 season across all of Ukrainian professional football was voided, per se. Then it restarted behind closed doors capacity last season, so the 22-23 season, and it went, as I mentioned, without any particular issues bar air raid interruptions, but in terms of any sort of direct damage or anything like that in the near vicinity of games and fans or players or anything like that, no one was... Uh, directly affected from a match day perspective. Shakhtar Donetsk won the league last year. Dnipro won, finished second. And Dynamo Kiev, who obviously most people associate with Ukrainian football, they finished lowly fourth. So this new season started in July. Shakhtar currently lead it, as I think to no real surprise, they probably got the best squad and probably the best finances. They currently are ready for their Champions League campaign, which kicks off this week. Their home base this season will be in Hamburg in Germany. And they will be playing all their sort of home matches for the Champions League there against the likes of Porto, Royal Antwerp and Barcelona in Hamburg and then across Europe. And on top of that, we've got the current state of play, Kriv Bass, who I mentioned there. They're currently second in the league, seven games in. And they've had a very good start, I think, Werner Dub, the manager that was in, in the armed forces of Ukraine, 
he's finally got his team to click. They've got a number of, of very good Ukrainian talents. And as well, they've brought in quite a number of African origin players who are really gelling well with the Ukrainian core and they're doing really well too. The other teams in Ukraine, the ones that you would expect to be doing okay on the European front, for example, Dynamo Kiev, they've sadly been knocked out of the Conference League. They're currently without Europe now for the remainder of the season because they were knocked out in the qualifiers. Dnit Pro 1, who finished second in the league last year, they're very lowly at the moment. They're at 12th out of 16 and they were knocked out from the Champions League qualifiers, the Europa League qualifiers and the Conference League qualifiers. One of the first ever to, to be knocked out of all three. They lost one of their key players uh, as a transfer this summer, Artem Dovbik. And they have just returned to the city of Dnipro literally this weekend and played their first game there since 2021. And they will be based there after being based in Ushrod in the very west of Ukraine, right near the Slovak border, fall of 22-23. They're now back in Dnipro. A number of their foreign players were a bit sceptical about going back to a city that is so close to the front line and that has been impacted by missile attacks and etc. But as far as I'm aware, they played out a one-all draw on the weekend against Kolos uh, there and it went without any issues and fingers crossed that as many matches as possible over this season can do so similarly. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for talking us through all of that. That was absolutely fascinating. One more thing here then. We couldn't talk about football without talking to a true fan. Jez Myers, you are a Capati Viv fan. Can you tell us how that happened? Um, like most people pre-all-out invasion, I knew very little about it. Chern- Chernobyl, war, former Soviet country, and, and of course, Klitschko, Shevchenko, Rebrov, the, the usual. I phoned a friend who works with bands who'd been before and told me how great Lviv was. Is any actually football so we went and it, it was fantastic i was enthralled by the spectacle of the carpati fans they were noisy they were pyrotechnics um you're able to drink beer whilst whilst you can watch the game which is something that's not really allowed in england above i think it's seventh tier um and so i was hooked and on our final day we met with uh, we found Canton our pub and we met andy and katya who own it and from that point became friends and I visited Lviv regularly to watch Karpaty. And then you had the, the long winter break that you always get in Ukraine. And then, of course, the all-out invasion. Uh, and then a few days ago, I was finally able to attend a Karpaty match and saw the Karpaty win. It was a great, great thing to be at. Watching the match was, was quite a strange experience with the lack of fans. It makes you realise just how important having fans are in terms of the impact of the viewing experience. It's great because you're sort of there, you're watching it and you're, you're enjoying it as best you can and you try and forget what's happening in Ukraine for the match. There's always that concern that maybe an air raid siren will stop play. They have the minute silence before the match starts. They, they have the sign with the players before thanking the Ukrainian army. You don't forget the reasons that you're there and um you know ultimately i can't wait until ukraine has won and i'm able to attend the first match for a ukrainian victory well thank you so much jazz andrew andre and roman for taking us through um some of the news and issues in ukrainian football at the moment i thought that was really interesting and it's great to hear more about how ordinary life uh, continues um, as best it can. Um, let's move to our final thoughts, though, uh, from Dom and James, and maybe um, Andrew would like to give his thoughts as well. Um, Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? 
Yeah, sure. Thanks, David. So two big things to keep an eye on this week, I would suggest. First, next um, episode of the Ranchtime Initiative. So Secretary of Defence, US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin has taken off about an hour ago on route to Germany for the 15th meeting of the Ramstein Contact Group. So this is 50 nations, partner nations who are assisting Ukraine with military and other other aid. So we'll see what they talk about uh, today. Named Ramstein because that's where they had the first meeting. And that's where they've got this one today. So hopefully that will be some significant moment and we might see a move on ATACMS and others, but keep an eye on that. And then secondly, the UN General Assembly is sitting up in New York. So Francis is up there. He's going to be covering that. And again, we might see some movements there. In the interview with John Kirby, he suggested that the President Biden might be trying to raise the issue of UN uh, reform. So a couple of things to, uh, to keep an eye out for there. Thank you very much, Dom. James Kilner. Uh, David, yeah, to, just to continue my uh, sort of economic slant uh, in, in this episode, just to all, all listeners of the pod, etc., to keep an eye out in Russia for the economic impact it's, it's having on over there. It's clear that it's in an opinion poll for the uh, Levada polling centre in August. Rising prices and uh, economic woes was Russia's biggest gripe, far, far beating corruption and the war. I, I mentioned this in the I talk about this in the context of if there is going to be a challenge to the status quo and to Putin, it's unlikely to come from from within the system. And this means that we have to look at all these little protests in much more detail. I'm not saying that there's going to be a great groundswell of protests, but with the ruble plunging and, and interest rates now at 13%, that happened on Friday, our ordinary people are feeling the pinch more and more. Thank you very much, Dom and James. Um, Andrew Tudis, could I just ask you for your final thoughts? You've spoken really eloquently and movingly about the current state of Ukrainian football. What does the future look like? Yes, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I feel that there will be a decline that will continue um, over the next season or two in Ukrainian football in terms of quality. The foreign players that the Ukrainian Premier League was able to attract in the past is no longer something that they're able to do. The foreign players that do come, very brave and commend to them. However, they probably aren't at the same level that they used to be even two years ago. I'd say that for anyone who does want to follow a bit about Ukrainian football, certainly do tune in on Tuesday of this week. Shakhtar will be playing against Porto in their new home, in inverted commas, of Hamburg in the Champions League. I think that's a 9pm Central European time kickoff. And you can watch Ukrainian Premier League football and some of the lower divisions on YouTube for free and plenty of other resources as well there. Fingers crossed that the season can go without any blips as it did last year and that Ukrainian sport remains prevalent in another front in this war that with Ukrainian teams and clubs and even in other sports being represented, they can continue to reach the paradigms that maybe people that don't follow news or current affairs will be able to interact with it. Well, thank you so much, Jez, Roman, Andre and Andrew, and James and Dom, of course, at The Telegraph. Dom, it's your final uh, day in the US. How are you feeling? Are you excited to come home? Feeling a bit shabby, if truth be known. (laughs) But uh, it's been a fantastic week. Um, And whilst it's not a representative poll, I can assure you that the folks in the Hard Rock Hotel on Daytona Beach 
were very much in support of Ukraine, although opinions and style did degrade as the weekend wore on. But I'll see you back in the UK. Well, thank you, Dom, James, Roman, Andrew and Jez. In the US, Dom managed to catch up with friend of the podcast, John Spencer. John is a former US Army Ranger. Now he talks and writes as a specialist in urban warfare at the Modern War Institute. That's part of West Point. They talked about how hope has to be managed in a time of war. Too little, and it can undermine morale. Too much, and it can lead to unrealistic battlefield expectations. John told Dom about the story of a fighter from Mariupol, whom he interviewed, who escaped Russian captivity and survived alone for months before a dramatic rescue. Here is their conversation. So I'm in Colorado Springs with a friend of the podcast, John Spencer, former major in the US Army, now an urban warfare specialist at the Modern War Institute, which is part of West Point. John, welcome back to the pod. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'd really like today to talk about hope, why hope is good, but also in the wrong circumstances or considered in the wrong way could actually be detrimental to a campaign. I remember one of my former commanding officers once said to me about planning. You know, if you end up with a plan, you say, well, you know, if the enemy do this, we hope to be able to come around there or, or we hope we've got enough supplies to last two days, blah, blah, blah. And he said, if the word hope enters your plan anywhere, then you haven't planned enough. And I think that's pretty apt. But hope can be a real motivator for soldiers and wider society. And to deny hope could be all it takes to tip a situation either in combat or in national recovery from a potential success into a failure. So from a military professional's perspective, how powerful would you say hope is? And should it be denied until victory has been achieved? What are the strengths and threats of allowing hope into your mind before then? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's part of that, like you said, that motivational system. And if we were teaching, when we're teaching at West Point, of course, we throw out the, the dead Prussians comments about war being a contest of wills. And that applies as much to a soldier as it does citizens and politicians. But I think culturally within the military, you also are always trying to almost dampen hope, like you said, not to get people's hopes too high, you plan for the worst, happy with if it goes a different direction. Where, but hope is in that motivational system where, of course, the opposite end of that bandwidth is loss of hope. And then defeat's there if you lose all hope. So you have to get soldiers, political leaders supporting operations, all have to have hope that good things are coming. Now that you get to the timeline, how long... Do you keep that going? How much do you have to do things to bolster hope, to keep it going without, like we've seen even recently, having these far-reaching expectations on a short term? So it's like you said, it's, it's a two-sided coin where it's a vital part of the motivational system, which is that will that the dead Clausewitz talked about. I don't like to be that guy, but it's a fact. I like things that help people understand war better is if you lose the will to fight, you lose the will to support the fight, is in Ukraine, its superpower is the will of all its supporters. It's all of the, of the alliance. If they don't have hope or see that there is a 
into it, there is a victory coming, then you've lost all hope and you might as well stop. Yeah. Now, before the full-scale invasion, many people saw what Putin's Russia had become and the threat it posed, but many did not. And those that haven't shut their minds off completely from the barbarism and inhumanity that's been given free reign by Putin's system are now experiencing, I reckon, experiencing a trauma. And I do use that word deliberately. Yeah, these people previously existed in a state of ignorant innocence, which can be a very attractive state of being. And they're now being asked to move to a place that acknowledges a darker and much more complicated reality. So how do those that see the threat from Putin, or how do those that have always seen the threat from Putin, help them through that transition without alienating or judging anyone? And do you think it is possible to acknowledge the darkness of the world, (laughs) and still see the world as a beautiful and innocent place? Yeah, I mean, that's such a true but complicated question. Of course, if you're some type of pacifist and you just want peace and you don't want war, you don't acknowledge the evil that Putin has even done in the last 500 plus days in Ukraine. The Buchas and the Mariupols and the deporting of all the children of Ukraine. But at a political level, I I acknowledge you work with your enemies as much as you do your friends. But the ones who've always seen the threat that Putin poses to Europe, to the world, have now been vindified. But they also have to work with the people who say, I recognize that, but we still need to move forward. And can we work with this? Can we live in a world where this evil is there? I I think so. I think this isn't the first time that we've had to face this, right? 1930s, 1939, everybody saw it coming. This is our moment to make a difference and not allow it to spread. And I think this is the test of the multinational organizations we created after World War II, the never again community. And when they come to the table, the people that saw it coming, who were voices, now have the evidence to show But some people are still so stubborn. But this is the test. This is the test of that global system to keep this evil in check. The evil will always be there. But the checks and balances, whether that's designs of sovereignty and nation state sovereignty, the laws of war, what can and can't be done, even if people don't agree on the reasons a war starts, we have to have a stand against this evil I'm not hopeful that the next General Assembly of the United Nations will do anything more than they've already done. But like our earlier question, I have hope. And I think a lot of people have woken up. And and this is the strategic blunder of the Putin and the Russian regime is that he's made NATO relevant. He's woken up entire societies in Europe to say, right, this is an evil. It will not stop. It must be stopped. Now, in terms of Hope, you recently met and interviewed and, and wrote up the story of a, uh, you know, an amazing, amazing man and his story of survival. And from what little I know, having read it and briefly chatted to you, I don't think he would have got through it if he didn't keep hope somewhere in his soul through, throughout all of that. Can you talk us through it in, in the detail you're able to? Just tell us that story and, and introduce this guy. This is absolutely fascinating. So uh, on my last trip to Kiev, I met with a guy because I'm studying the Battle of Mariupol. So I was introduced to this guy named Gina, who was 
I liken him to Rambo, but he's more like a Jason Bourne and a Rambo combination where he had served in the Ukrainian army. He had been a paratrooper. He served in the Marines in Mariupol because he grew up there. And then he had gotten out and, and was in some special police services and other organizations and happened to be living in Mariupol when the full scale invasion started. It's like you have this guy in your community who then says, right, they've invaded. They're coming from my city. He takes up arms at the beginning of the war and fights with a group of veterans, which I think is what Red Dawn for us got wrong, is that the veterans that you think are going to stand up. But he stood up, fought the Russians in Mariupol. His little group gets cut down to two. The two of them try to make a a run towards the Azovstal steel factory, which is really big in the story of Mariupol. He gets blown up. He gets captured. He gets tortured and captured in Mariupol for weeks. So, so he didn't make it into the steel plant with no. that defense. So yeah. he was captured before that happened. Yeah, he was. He was. He knew as a citizen of Mariupol that that would be a stand, a last stand. And he had gotten enough communication to know that there were people there. And he was. It was almost like this hope of he always wanted to get to the steel factory. And, and throughout his journey, there's so many times where he's like, "Okay, we just got to get to the factory." So when there's only two of them left, they try to they hotwire a car and try to get to the factory. It gets blown up by a landmine, which knocks him unconscious and starts his injuries. When he gets captured, it's almost like the what we have as these schools for survival and evasion and resistance. And in his story, that's what he's doing because he's who he is. And at one point when the steel factory fight is going on, all his Russian captors are called away from him and sent to the factory. So he's left in this basement, tied up, and he literally chews his bondages off, falls out of a second-story building to escape his torture. There's a brief episode where two people see him, grab him, and try to take him back into the house. So it's like a movie that's actually real life in this story and why I was sort of motivated to write it. Right. So he gets away from his captors. He makes it back to his own apartment building constructs where he's he goes into the basement where all the civilians are, and he basically passes out and is hiding out. Where this bloke comes in and says, my family's burning in our house. I need help. And nobody stands up. So Gina, already wounded, says, I'll help. Helps this guy with his pregnant wife and his two daughters escape this burning building. Gets them to safety and then goes back into his basement with other civilians he wakes up with a Russian soldier with a gun in his face right. because he had taken off his shirt after saving these children. And he has tattoos that are military related. Well, the guy whose family he saved reported him to the Russian military. Why did he do that? What possible motivation? Don't know. Yeah. So he's captured a second time. Yeah. And he is, so he escapes. And I'm trying to tell the story as fast as possible. It's just uh, so unbelievable. He escapes... Again, and this time he, he is so wounded from all this torture, basically, that he knows he can't make it to the factory. But he's heard that on the basically on the other side of the river that separates Mariupol, that there are less patrols. So he makes his way over there and he basically enters a, a life of sheer survival, living in a basement of Mariupol. And in a basement he finds and he improves and there's lots in there about just mental Ability, And he actually talks about that he couldn't let too much hope into his mind because days turn into weeks. He starts eating anything he can, pigeons, animals. 
he's low crawling at night because he wouldn't go out in the day because he can't walk anymore. He's, he's low crawling on his belly to a landfill to try to find food. And he does that for almost nine months total. Well, and there are so few Russians on that side of the river that he's able to have this kind of nighttime existence right. scavenging for food. Right, which would really impact you know, if you're a survivalist, you think about, okay, and he and someone's in there about how he's filtering his water because like, this guy is like like this elite soldier who's like our John Rambo story. Uh, he's filtering his water in bottles. He can't cook fires to boil water because that smoke would maybe somebody would come find him because he's deathly scared of being captured and tortured again. So he's doing that to survive. And he talks about not letting hope. So he basically enters a motive where he just survives one day at a time. Like he just has to make it through a day, which is we talk about in the military is, is a way, right? How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? But I, mean, I can't put myself in Gina's shoes. I, I, I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to do what he did. Well, just like the a movie story, one day a, a Ukrainian girl shows up on the horizon, just staring at Gina in this what had to be a sad state, and she would just look at him for for a long time, and then one day, where she would stand, there was a basically a pile of food, a, a small portion of food. So this Ukrainian girl was delivering him food eventually, and then weeks later, one day there's a phone, a Russian phone. So Gina takes his phone back to his hideout and just stares at it for hours, not knowing what to do with it. Plus, she turned it on, and at this point, Russians have Mariupol. We're, we're months into occupation, so there's a Russian cell network. It's a Russian chip, and he had no idea what to do with it. So he gets on the phone, actually, which is interesting for us, all the Twitter space and all that, and gets on Instagram and looks through his Instagram because he didn't have a, a hard password, he said. So... He got on Instagram and tried to find somebody he would trust enough or somebody that would believe enough of his story. And he finds an old mate that he had served with in the Marines and he tells them what's happening, like that he's in this survival mode behind enemy lines. And most of his friends like us, like dark humor is like, dude, you're, you're screwed. <laughs> and literally that's what they tell him. And he laughs to me about it when I was interviewing him, but you feel so bad. He's like, yeah, he's like, and I'm like, just turn yourself in and maybe we can exchange you for somebody. He's not a soldier. He's like, there's nobody to exchange for. He's not a soldier. He hadn't been a soldier for a long time. And he was, again, deathly scared. And who wouldn't be what he'd already been through? And then one day, he's back on the phone and they introduced him to somebody in the Navy. Like, hey, we hear you're a good Marine. And this is the part he wouldn't tell me about because it's, it's classified. But they do some type of Navy SEAL for us or SAS related operation. And they pulled Gina out of Mariupol nine months into its occupation and he was sitting in a cafe in Kiev with me telling me not only in a very humble way about his story which I'm like I'm just shocked by it because it's just this epic story of the will to live and to survive but all he wanted us to do is to medically get better so he can go back to fighting and achieving victory for Ukraine so he's in Kiev with most of his teeth were knocked out so doing, doing a lot of reconstruction and He's training soldiers in key, but one I was so motivated by the story was because there have been other stories of, of this type of superhuman survival in World War II in the Pacific and other places, but I hadn't heard a modern one. But also is that his story hasn't made it out of Ukraine. There's one long form Ukraine video in person of him and people know about him, 
But I was really passionate when I got back after my last trip of getting it out. And I mean, this is a Steven Spielberg movie, yeah. a book, uh, yeah. just an epic story of the things that we talk about, hope, will to live, all of this. And to me, the struggle of the Ukrainians, you're not going to, you're not going to subjugate them. And I think this is where on a broader scale that Putin has to realize is you're not, you're not going to out suffer the Ukrainians. And did he talk about his motivation? What kept him going? What was it that, that will to live, that will to survive? Where did it come from? It had to come from something eternal. We, I mean, we briefly mentioned it. He just said that he actually says, and I wrote it in there because I tried to quote him as much as possible that you can't let hope seep in. You can't let it seep in. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So at one point he realizes that there is no hope. So he goes into this weird mental mode of just surviving one day at a time. And actually, when he was staring at the phone, I quote him on this too. He's staring at the phone and says, okay, here's my alternative. When the, basically the special forces reach back out to him, like, look, we have a plan to get you out. And there's a 1% chance it'll work. And they told him that. So they left it to him. Do you want to take a 1% chance to escape? So he makes a decision. Do I want to continue to live in this animal state? Or they don't want to take a 1% chance to live in the way he words it. I don't know. It's a very clearly a part of who he is to just not be able to quit. And that's something I learned when I was in nothing like that. But in bad spots is that you don't have to imagine winning or imagine something else. But that ability to, no matter what's going to happen, I'm not going to quit is something I've heard from Navy SEALs that have gone through their intensive training, everything like that. The first step is just taking that ability out of yourself. Like, there is no quit. Like, either you die doing it or you, or you just keep doing it. I think that was something from his, all his military and other training. It's just something inside that guy. And when you talk to him, you can tell he's something different. We spoke about this and about the, the courses that we have in the British and American militaries to try to prepare people for this, the Siri courses, Survive, Evade, Resist, Escape. That's right. And running through all of that, obviously, is the motivation and what you hold dear. And it might be belief in the cause, belief in your country, belief in, or love for your family, or you know, all of these things. But something in there, you have to have something. But at the same time, it can't get too big. Because as you say, if you have too much hope, then it can just overwhelm you and your, and your, and your mind can shut down and only focus on that. It's just, it's just an extraordinary story. I mean, how old was this guy? Did, did, he, did he have a family? Did he talk about a family at all? Did he, I'm just trying to work out what it was. that. Yeah, he seemed to be... What did he want to come mid, back to? Mid-30s. He had a girlfriend, because that's when he when the war started, his girlfriend looked out the window and goes, oh, look, fireworks. And, <laughs> and Gina, being who he was, like, no, that's the start of the war. When the bombing started on February 24th, it started in Mariupol uh, strongly. So I, I don't think he was – that would be another one of you fighting for your, your family, right? Your, your son, your daughter, your mother, your father. I didn't get that from him. And this is why I really – I hope that his story reaches a broader audience and they do a much deeper book on, on Gina, who he was and how he was able to do this. I just tried to hit the high points of what he endured. And now i got all these questions from people like, where's his girlfriend? I don't know. Where's the girl who helped him? I assume she's still in Mariupol under captivity. So that's a great question. But, I mean, he seemed like you know, like me and you, actually, like you know, a post-service, experienced guy. You're not going to – you clearly the Russians weren't going to break. Oh, it's just extraordinary. I mean, there's so many questions there. The girl, as you say, the girl that, that left the food out. And then how did she come by a Russian phone? Yeah. 
I mean, maybe as you say, they'd been there for months by then. So and they'd set the cell towers up and the and the infrastructure. So maybe that was all all there was. But I mean, it's just an extraordinary story. But just to finish off with, what, what did you take from that? Because you've been trained in this way. I mean, God forbid, never had to do it for real. But from your training, can you relate? Is the training good enough? Does it bring out or introduce these ideas so that when you're going through it, Gina thought about it in these terms, was he able to draw on that training? Or from what you heard from him, do you think actually he would have gone, nah, that's rubbish, you can't, you can't rely on that, you've got to come up with another plan? No, I think as you and I have both been through some hard military training, I could relate to some parts of like that build that trying to get people to understand that quitting is not an option is something inherent in all of our militaries that we try to do. And that's really hard to do. We make the training as tough as possible. And in, in some of the harder training, people die yeah. because you are actually trying to, to make it. But we always say train hard, fight easy. But, you know, there's no amount of training. can. No, I think this is this gets to something that I'm also passionate about, identity. And I didn't ask him this question, but you could tell that Gina was very proud to have been in the military, but also to have been in Mariupol. He talked about growing up in Mariupol and making a choice between the steel factory or the military, went to the military. So we try to do identity forming, right? I'm always going to have been a ranger, a soldier. I think when when put to the hardest of tests, nobody's going to get, not many people will be put to that hard of a test. You had to look inside and say, who am I? Gina is a fighter, and that's a fact. John, as ever, great to speak to you. Thanks. What a story. Thanks, Are you still in touch with Gina? I, I am. Actually, I am. And I'm still trying to get his story to other people. So hopefully I'll be back in November and hopefully I get to see him again. Brilliant. Look forward to hearing about it. Thanks. Great to see you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Rachel Porter and the executive producers were me, David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.